morning. Today's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, um, chapter 15, verses 17 to 32, which can be found on page 1049 of the Church Bibles. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. For a minute, let me pray for a minute. Father, thank you this morning that you know everything about us. Our disappointments, our frustrations, our hopes and our dreams. Our guilt, our shame, our successes, our failures. Thank you that as we do, as we bring ourselves before you, that you love to bless us, love to meet us where we are and move us on. Would you pour your life afresh in each one of us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to see you uh, this morning. For those who are visiting, I'm Tim Gleckman. I'm the rector here at St. Swithins, and it's great to be with you. And for one, for those of you here regularly, for one last time, we are going to delve into Luke 15 uh, this morning uh, as part of what we're looking at. 
It's a story of two brothers and a father. It's possibly one of the most well-known stories in the New Testament, certainly one of Jesus' best-known stories. And a few weeks ago, I asked a number of you who were here to say, what was it like growing up as the youngest or the oldest in your family? And we talked about that a bit. And particularly for those of you who are the eldest in your family, I have to say I sometimes feel for the eldest child, you seem to get the raw deal. That actually you seem to get the worst of your parents' parenting when they're, they're most anxious, they're most concerned to do their best. Now I say that, no surprise to some of you, as the youngest in my household. I'm the youngest of three, um, and so I don't remember a lot about when I was a lot younger, it's quite a long time ago. So I asked my brother, um, my brother and sister are twins, they're two and a half years older than I am. And I asked my brother and said, what was it like growing up as the oldest brother? Uh, with, partly with me as the youngest, and he told me this story. My brother had, when he was growing up, what is called, was called at the time, but it's not very PC probably to call it nowadays, but he had what was called bandy legs. And so legs that went straight, and so he went to see the doctor, and the doctor said, well, actually, what you need to do is to get your legs straightened. And what the doctor prescribed at that time, I don't know whether they still do it, but he was given metal splints to wear at night, and so he's given these metal splints that he had to wear on his legs, really uncomfortable to actually straighten his legs so he could use his legs properly, and they were all part of that. And he did that for two years between the age of five and seven. And towards the end of the time, when he was getting to the point where the doctor was going to say, you know, you don't need to wear them anymore, I too had bandy legs. And the doctor said, well, actually, he, Tim needs to wear them too. And so I was prescribed at the same time to, uh, to wear these splints right at the point at which my brother was giving up. But as a five-year-old, I refused to wear them. As a five-year-old, I refused to wear them and said the only way I would wear these would be if my brother would wear them too. <laughs> Audience has turned against me. <laughs> So for a year, my elder brother wore splints so that I would wear them. Sometimes, elder brothers have a tough time. Talk to my parents. Oh, you can't. They're not here. But if you've got issues with me, come and talk to my parents too. Those who followed it will know that traditionally we see the elder brother as someone who's dutiful, someone who's responsible, who's got a strong work ethic. Essentially, they're often very big parent pleasers. And like the Pharisees and the teacher of the law of the day, they were very moral and always diligent in what they did. Essentially, very religious people. While the youngest, we often associate with being rebels, with being free spirits, people who seek the company of their peers, their friends, and like to do their own thing. Like the tax collectors and sinners, they weren't interested in observing the moral laws. They wanted to make their own laws themselves and were involved in wild living. So what we have before us is a story of a loving father and two sons who are lost, who are spiritually lost, alienated from the father in different ways. The youngest is set on a life of self-discovery, breaking all the rules, looking terrible, being very, very bad, 
while the oldest, being full of self-righteousness, is being very, very good, but both are lost. Both are seeking ways to happiness. Both are looking for a good life. But both are lost. Both, too, are loved. But the parable, if you notice it and you've read it and you know this quite well, you'll notice for the both sons it ends quite differently. The pri- this parable is primarily aimed, actually, at the Pharisees, the elder brothers amongst us. Jesus is pleading with the Pharisees. He's pleading with them to see their blindness, to see their self-righteousness. And he's saying, look how it's destroying yourself and it's destroying people around you. And this passage at heart confronts us with this, is it truly accepting God's unconditional, undeserved love, his extraordinary grace and forgiveness is often much harder than actually giving it. See, the difficulty is, is it's a place beyond earning, beyond trying, beyond deserving. It's a place of surrender, a place of trusting in the goodness of the giver of life itself. So what's going on with this eldest brother in this story? Let's have a look at three particular things. The first is the seriousness of lostness, I've called it. Not very good English, but hopefully that'll be with you, with, stay with you. Being lost, as many of you will know, whether you're um, a parent and you've lost a child, when you've gone shopping and even for a moment you have a sense of panic at the seriousness of the position of having lost somebody or something that's precious to you is something we can all identify with. But the elder brother in this story has no appreciation that his younger brother is lost at all. And more importantly, this eldest brother doesn't appear to care. In verse 30, he calls his brother this son of yours. He can't even call his own brother my brother. It's as if he's actually disowned him, completely unaware of the danger to his younger brother or to the pain of his father. He's completely oblivious. At the end, in verse 32, the father corrects him and and says this. He says to his eldest son, do you not get it? This is your brother. He was dead and is now alive. He was lost, but now he's found. Those of you who know your scripture will know that there's two short parables before this parable in Luke's gospel about the lost coin and the lost sheep. And this parable is, different, is similar, it's about lost and found, but it's also different in one particular way that's always really been interesting, and that's this. Nobody goes out to look for the lost son. I mean, the father greets him from the porch, but nobody goes out to greet, to look for, to, look for sorry, to seek and to search out, as with the coin and with the sheep. Both those things are sought after, searched for, what Jesus knows is that a true elder brother would have gone out and sought his younger brother, would have found him and brought him home. A true elder brother would have sought his younger brother and brought him home. 
We know from the story of Cain and Abel, which is very different to the culture we live in now, but we are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. The eldest brother stayed at home, confident in his own moral superiority. He wasn't prepared to pay the price of losing his dignity or his hard-earned position of moral self-righteousness and the power he'd earned by being right. In Luke 19.10, that we'll get to in a few weeks' time, Jesus describes his ministry as that of seeking and saving the lost. This eldest brother was prepared to pay the cost for his younger brother. Why? Because it's not right. It's not right. It's not just. So you see the anger in this older son and the resentment that's in his heart as his heart is laid bare in this encounter. Why? Well, because it's his brother's fault after all. I mean, he's been an idiot, his younger brother. He's gone and frittered away the inheritance. I mean, it's not worth saving, is he? In these few verses, we see very clearly that the eldest brother is lost. His heart is dripping with anger, resentment, and bitterness. His values of earning a good life, of earning his father's love and his father's approval, just isn't achievable. His desire to control his father and his father's estate through his self-earned obedience is shown for what it is. Contrast that with the father. The father patiently endures a tremendous loss of honor and takes the pain as he leaves the party to implore his son, come to the party. The eldest son insults his father, being insolent, and rejects his father's beckoning, his summons, his call, his invitation. The father endures the pain of rejected love, as both sons at different points are lost. So this morning, simple question. What's the state of your heart this morning? Lost or found? And more so than that, do we care about the lost around us? Do we care about those around us who are lost? About um, a year or so ago, I'd already planned that we're going to preach this a long time ago, and before Adrian came on the church weekend away to talk about Luke 15, I remember being in a prayer meeting here, and the person didn't really understand necessarily what they were praying. But this person I know loves the church deeply, and by that I mean the people and all that's part of it. This person is praying. So he said, you know, we seem to be a church of older brothers. We seem to be a church of older brothers. And this person prayed it with a sense of sadness. And actually, we are a church, and I'll come to this in a bit. We want to welcome all. But God invites the eldest brother to the party. Secondly, the joy of founding. If you've ever lost anything precious to you, you'll know the amazing joy of founding something that's lost. 
joy, 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 and something of that experience of finding something when it's lost. In this parable, there's a beautiful picture of the embrace of the father of his youngest son as he returns. We see this great party, and Fran talked about this a little bit last week. Music, dancing, the fatting calf was killed. As the father says in verses 32, we had to celebrate and be glad. For what was dead is alive. What was lost is found. What else could the father do in this circumstance? How often have I heard in churches, this isn't just this church, but in many, many churches, the arguments for not being a joyful, celebrating community. So anxious not to offend other people that we lose sight of the joy that means that unites why we're here. So-and-so has had such a tough time. Or we don't need to be excessive. God, we don't want to look as though we're worshipping an abundant God or a, a God who provides in all sorts of means. Not the fattened calf. You know, maybe pizza, but not a fattened calf. Godly justice in this passage. Godly justice which offends the older brother means joy and celebration. We see this too in the preceding parables in Luke 15. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. See, for the eldest brother, on one of the greatest days of his father's life, there's no joy in finding of his brother. His self-obsession means he's too consumed with the issues of his own understanding of justice and equity, so he refuses to join the party. He's home, but he's far away. He's home, but he's far away. I've never disobeyed you, he says. You've never even given me a young goat, he says, as he humiliates and argues with his father. You have no right to do this. You can hear the older brother saying to his father. Elder brother, spirit is joyless, fear-based compliance. He boasts of compliance. But his underlying motivation creeps out too. All these years, I have been slaving for you. All these years, I've been slaving for you. There's no joy or love in seeing his father pleased. Instead, there's slavish, joyless duty. Duty, as someone puts it, without beauty. He's trapped in a world of his own superiority, can't forgive, can't find joy, can't celebrate, even though his own brother, his own brother, has returned. Elder brothers live a good life out of fear of doing nothing wrong, not of joy or of love. They have a lack of assurance of the abundance of the Father's love for them. You never threw me a party like that, he cries. And if this morning, if you believe that you need to earn God's love, then you will never be sure that God loves you and delights in you for who you are rather than what you do. At the end of the story, there's a feast of homecoming, which you also see at the end of the Bible in Revelation 19. The father pleads with his son with both tenderness, there's tenderness in this exchange, 
but there's an urgency too. Join in the celebration. This is Jesus pleading with his phar- the Pharisees, his enemies. He's pleading with them to join the party. But joy is at the heart of who we are. This is a quote I've used before, but to help you think, this is a quote by C.S. Lewis. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum, because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Thirdly and lastly, verse 31 hangs over this whole passage of what could be. My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. The father's making it clear that he's always been with him. There was nothing he had that wasn't for his sons too. There's no reason for the jealousy and the bitterness. But the son lived in ignorance of what was his. Seeing his relationship with his father as one with duty and servant. And of not understanding the privileges he enjoyed as a son. So I wonder, is that like us this morning? Do you realize that in accepting Christ, you're not a pauper in the kingdom? unaware of the abundance of your inheritance and the heirs with God of the riches of the kingdom of heaven. But actually, that's what our place is. That's what it means to be a child of God and an heir of the kingdom of God. Everything is ours. Everything is ours. Ask him. He's your father who delights to give good gifts to his children. Yet here, seeing the father's generosity to his brother only highlighted the distance that the older brother was from his father. The older brother was home, but far away. The son here is an outsider out of this feast while being there. The eldest son demonstrates to us that you can avoid Jesus as your saviour by keeping all the moral laws, by being very, very good. And you have rights, you see. If you obey all the laws, you have rights, and God owes you. If you do what God tells you and obey all the moral laws, God owes you a good life. Then you don't need a a saviour who saves you by free grace, because you're your own saviour. You're just doing what you're thinking, therefore God owes you, and you've saved yourself, essentially. It's actually really ironic that the eldest brother demonstrates the same spirit as his younger brother in wanting his, the, his father's estate and his possessions rather than the love and the relationship with the father himself. And what we see demonstrated here is what Christians have said again and again, is that sin isn't breaking a set of rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God as Lord and Saviour. The prerequisite for receiving the extraordinary love and grace of God is knowing you were created for it, knowing you need it, 
and asking for it. The eldest son remains oblivious to his need of God. Because he's doing it all himself. He doesn't need a saviour. We've often understood the word prodigal to mean being wayward. But what prodigal actually means is to spend till you have nothing left. Hence the prodigal son who spent all his inheritance finally comes home. But it also applies to the father here who gives everything to his two sons. And God too is prodigal to us in his love, his mercy, his grace and his forgiveness in giving his only son Jesus for us. Giving it all for us this morning. Religion says, I obey Therefore, I'm accepted by God. Have God says, you're accepted by me through the work of Jesus. Therefore, go and obey. None of us merits God's grace and God's favor. We need to believe in what Jesus offers us, what Jesus gives to us, and receive it by faith. The story is told by Ernest Hemingway of a father and a son who had a relationship that became really, really strained to the point of breaking. Finally, the son ran away from home. His father, however, was uh, grief-stricken by the loss of his son, and so he started to uh, go through the country to try and find his rebellious son who had left home. And finally, he was in Madrid, and in a last desperate effort to find his son and to connect with him again, the father put an ad in the newspaper And the ad read read this. Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The next day at noon, in front of the newspaper office in Madrid, 800 Pacos showed up. The whole parable aims to draw in the Pharisees and get them to see, the ex- to, to accept the Father's love, the undeserved nature of his grace. Will the eldest son respond to the pleading of his father to join the feast? We see a father full of love and forgiveness that can pardon anything you've done this morning. In the past, currently, can restore you, forgive any wrongdoing. None of whatever you've done is a match for his prodigal, saving grace. And the Father's love for you this morning is absolutely free. Let's pray. Just going to have a moment of quiet. Father, I want to thank you afresh this morning that you know each one of us. Some of us here may know the assurance of your love for us. 
Something people maybe long to know, the assurance of your love for us. And some here may just not know what they think. But in the quiet, I pray, would you fall afresh upon each one of us? Would you pour your spirit out afresh upon us? Pour your love abroad in our hearts by your spirit. Father, we confess and we repent that both in our younger brother hearts and in our older brother hearts, we're prone to lostness, to want to go our own way, do our own thing, and to replace you as our Saviour and Lord. And Father, we ask this morning that you would forgive us. Set our feet afresh upon the rock that is Jesus, that will stand through all types of seasons, all types of challenges. Thank you for your amazing grace, the assurance of those who put their trust in you, who turn to you with honest and sincere hearts, that you forgive all our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. And Father, that would you create in us and create in me a fresh heart, that we would be a church full of the nature of the Father's love, prodigal in its giving, generous, forgiving, patient, kind, compassionate. And Father, too, I pray, would you particularly, I cry out, would you give us a heart for the lost and a passion to see people brought home to you? Thank you that you're faithful. Soften our hearts afresh, I pray this morning. Come and meet with us. Come and touch our lives afresh. Touch mine, touch others. The good news of Jesus would radically change how we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.